Welcome to Playmakers Impact Unleashed, your all access pass to the game changers of today and the history makers of tomorrow. I'm your host, Paul Epstein, sports industry veteran, author and speaker, founder of Purpose Labs, and your guide through an inspiring journey of courage, comeback, and transformation. Let's take a no BS look beyond the trophy cabinet to unleash every guest's impact and how they've achieved both success and significance so we can apply those same purpose-driven principles in our own lives and careers. As playmakers, let's get ready to lock arms and take action so we can all level up and make a play together. On today's show, we're welcoming in Aaron Hurst, a pioneer of purpose, co-founder and CEO of Imperative, and author of the groundbreaking book, The Purpose Economy. Speaking of purpose, for some, it's a mindset. For others, it's a lifestyle. But for Aaron, it's an opportunity for a movement, or as he calls it, a purpose economy. Aaron argues that at the intersection of purpose and business, we should not only do well, we should do good. As purpose is a foundational driver of connection, relationships, and humanity. Aaron and I are about to go deep on the working world. But not just any working world, a world that is fueled by purpose. So imagine this. You and I, we find ourselves working in an environment where each and every one of us is inspired to go in each day. We show up to serve, contribute, and make an impact. We pour our strengths, our gifts, our talents, our passions, and our efforts into every action we take. Where the performance takes care of itself because we're so invested in what we do. Or should I say, why we do it. At the end of a long, hard-fought day, you're fulfilled and then you're excited to do it again the next day. That is the working world that Aaron imagines. As playmakers, it's likely the working world that we all imagine. The great news is it is a million percent possible when we focus on living and leading with purpose in the new era known as the purpose economy. I can't wait for you to listen in to this special conversation where we can all lock arms, meet at the 50, and embark on a mission to make more purpose-driven plays than we ever could have imagined. Enjoy the conversation. Big thanks to Audible.com for being a sponsor of today's show. As playmakers, we're all about leveling up and lifelong learning. So what could be better than a free audiobook and 30-day free trial when you visit audible.playmakerspod.com? With over 200,000 titles to choose from, there is no limit to what you can explore. Perhaps... And these are just a few of my personal favorites you want to check out 
The Success Principles by Jack Canfield. Consider this chicken soup for the soul of personal growth. Or maybe you dive into Grit by Angela Duckworth, where she unpacks the power of what happens when passion meets perseverance. Again, to download your free audiobook today, go to audible.playmakerspod.com. It's about that time to welcome Aaron Hurst into the conversation. But before we do, a few highlights. Aaron is the co-founder and CEO of Imperative, a purpose-driven assessment and peer coaching platform. He's founder of the Taproot Foundation and a catalyst of the $15 billion pro bono service market. Aaron is a producer of the annual Workforce Purpose Index and author of the top-rated book on Amazon, The Purpose Economy. He even received the highest honor of University of Michigan alumnus. A, how do I get on that list? B, you may or may not hear about some Go Blue references in this interview. Just saying. Without further ado, let's bring Aaron onto the Playmakers podcast. Aaron, welcome to Playmakers. How are we doing? Great. Excited to be here with you today. Absolutely. And on behalf of the entire Playmaker community, we are fired up because everybody knows my backstory, the whole finding why, activating purpose. So you are certainly talking to an extremely purpose-driven community. So for you, why enter the purpose space? Like for me, I trace it back to finding my why, making values those driving force of how I make decisions, how I show up. Was there a moment or is there an origin story of why you dove so deep into the purpose space? Yeah, so I'm very, very lucky in that um, I think it was a family business more than it was something that I had to like bump into um, in my journey. Um, You and I both went Mm -hmm. to Michigan and on the the steps. Go Blue. Yeah, Go Blue. Um, On the steps of the Union, um, many decades ago, President Kennedy announced the formation of the Peace Corps. And... The Peace Corps actually originated on my grandfather's work coming out of World War II, where he was trying to figure out how do we prevent Mm. World War III? And his epiphany was that if people truly spend time in purpose working together, not as tourists, but truly understanding each other's culture, um, that we have a chance of truly building understanding. And when he presented that idea to the president, um, that became sort of the force behind uh, the Peace Corps. And that Mm. to me, um, really, if I point to like a moment in family history, like really is a catalytic moment. Um, of just seeing the power um, and the legacy of that. And he went on to run the Aspen Institute for 25 years, which similarly used purpose to bring people of different backgrounds together um, and to really help them uh, uh, find find common solutions to challenges by bringing a different Mm -hmm. perspective, but shared purpose. Um, Mm. And then, you know, my career personally, you know, my first exposure to this um, in terms of uh, being a social entrepreneur was at Michigan. Uh, create a program where students went out to a local prison to teach creative writing and tied wow. a bunch of curriculum around that um, for them. So there was a really experiential and service learning for them. And again, was this opportunity to bridge two different cultures, those sort of in a prison, one institution and a university, another state institution, um, but very different. And, you know, without exception, people said that was their best experience as an undergrad at Michigan was that was that class. Um, because mm. it was so real, it was tied to purpose. Um, and I just realized that purpose is the ideal way to build relationships, but also to 
actually get to know each other um, and to truly sort of see humanity in each other, even if like we start off with judgment. So that's sort of, yeah. to me, origin story, the long-winded version for you, Paul. No, no, that's great. I, and I was going to ask from that Michigan experience, and it's fascinating how you say that it was institutional from education, and then you think of the prison. And so if you could extract, and maybe you've already shared it, but this is such a fascinating backstory, extract that takeaway, like walking away from that experience. You mentioned relationships, but is there something more? Like in, in a sense... Purpose to me is the ultimate driver of hope and of optimism and especially coming off a year like we're coming off. Then you think of the other side and you think of if I'm in prison, I perhaps am lacking hope. I am lacking purpose. So how do you integrate that? Like what, what's that purpose-driven takeaway given the environment that you guys were in? Well, I think there's a couple pieces to that, Paul. So um, one of them is if you think about like what lacks purpose, um, writing a paper for one graduate student to read in grade and slaving over like this, this paper that you're writing is 10 page paper that like is going to get read quickly and be like B plus, right? Like talk about something yeah. that lacks purpose. So I think for a student to actually learn by doing something for someone else and to realize yeah. that I learned more through service than I did through some BS paper that I had to write for you know a graduate student um, who was grading that paper that'll never be read again. Um, and for people just to see that they have the power to impact someone else's life um, ah. and the sense of uh, purpose that creates in terms of thinking about their careers, thinking about how they want to spend their time, thinking about their role in society. I think all mm -hmm. those things were uh, things that created hope. They created a sense of identity, a sense of nobility um, behind, uh, you know, their careers and what they were thinking about doing next. You know, I think for the, the folks that were inmates at the you know, correctional facility, um, you know, I probably had less insights on that, to be honest, because we didn't get to debrief. Like we had an hour car okay. ride home with the students and we'd all talk about the experience. Um, sure. I didn't get that time afterwards to <laughs> debrief with the inmates. But um, I know they all said it was their favorite time of the week. Um, I know that the process of writing and being able to express who they are and what they stand mm. for through that process was something yeah. that they got a lot of value out of. And, you know, if that's not purpose, it's certainly tangential or a cousin uh, to purpose. Certainly. And, and so... One of the things I'm thinking about is, especially in it, and we're going to go deep on purpose, we're going to go deep on generations, and I know you've been very keen on just this millennial-driven impact of when they essentially are the majority of the workforce, which you know the numbers better than anybody. You can definitely fill us in. I want to come back to that. But the easy button here is we could say that the future of society is purpose-driven. We can say that we want to create an impact. We want to make a difference. What if there's somebody listening in right now that doesn't feel they have purpose? They don't feel like they're a part of something bigger than themselves. They're struggling to create daily impact. What advice tactically, what perspective would you have that our listeners could just activate effective tomorrow? So I think you got to start with a attitude of abundance instead of scarcity. Um, mm. And what I mean by that is uh, we often are looking for something big when there's a lot of little things that are already there. Uh, so yeah. um, we talk about them as like positive deviants. They're like things that are the out of the norm, <laughs> but in a positive way. So I would just ask someone mm. to like reflect on the last day, the last week, the last month of like, when did you feel energized? When did you feel like you did something that actually mattered to somebody else? And it could be as simple as having someone smile. Um, and it can mm -hmm. certainly go up from there. But just find little moments where... Um, you felt more human, you felt more energized, or you felt like you were doing something that mattered a little bit. And then just start to multiply those. 
Um, so do them twice as often, three times as often, four times as often. Um, experiment with other ways. So it's not always about like totally like jumping ship, like radical change. Mm -hmm. That works sometimes, but generally is not the right strategy. The better strategy is to identify little bits of success and multiply them and find things that are similar until you've like over the course of a year or two years, find yourself maybe even in the same job, but with a totally different perspective on um, that job and who you are. Yeah, I love that. And where you're bringing us is you mentioned scarcity versus abundance, something that I'll give credit to another thought leader, Ed Milet. I've heard him say this, that when you are feeling helpless, then you need to be helpful. So rather than focus on what you don't have, which we could call that the scarcity, the best way is to become service-oriented, impact-driven. Basically, what contributions can you bring to the table, even in the most dire of circumstances? And then to your point, what fuels you? If your day-to-day -day activities, even zoom out from work, let's say you're currently not loving what you do, you could say, well, what activities give me energy versus deplete me of my energy and start to journal, start to note-take, start to be aware of those things. And then to your point, double down, create some momentum, but small daily steps versus this macro, I need to find my why by tomorrow. I, I Yeah, let's focus on, on more of the granular. So for you, Part of your journey was authoring The Purpose Economy, which I'll tell you, I found to be my favorite book on purpose because of how deep you went and also where I think other resources may lack that this book did not is you gave the history of the world before, as you call it, The Purpose Economy. So bring us in, give us a little bit more of that. So now you're the professor, all right? So we got Professor Hurst and he is gonna explain what economies have existed if we were to take a look in the past? And then what was that turning point where you say the economy before what you call the purpose economy expired? How did you know that we were stepping into a new space? So give us that history lesson all the way up to the purpose economy. Yeah, I'm no, happy to. And um, it really starts before there were economies. I mean, picture like if you and I were alive thousands and thousands of years ago in the Serengeti, um, there were no jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, there was none. Of, there was no managers. There was none of sort of the infrastructure we think about now um, as an economy. Um, and I think arguably our lives were probably full of a lot of purpose because we were caring for our tribe. We were caring for people mm. um, around us, and we were, you know, often in a, a state of survival. So I think there was something sort of innate there um, that you know had purpose in it. Um, the first sort of global economy was the agrarian economy. Um, the agrarian economy is when we learned how to basically stay put and grow our own food so we didn't have to be nomads anymore. And we mm -hmm. started to see, though, with that sort of rise, um, the, the creation of land owners, because land suddenly could be owned. Because from a nomad, you wouldn't own land, right? But mm -hmm. um, as soon as you have an agrarian economy, you start having landowners and non-landowners. Um, and there started to be a totally significant change in the dynamic between, if you will, management and landowners and those who like needed access to it. And that sort of the, the fundamental contract was work my land or die. I mean, mm. at a, more, a very fundamental yeah. level. Um, in many cases, it was slavery um, in the agrarian economy or something very close to slavery. And this is sort of where some of the early dynamics in the workforce started to take place was actually in that economy, which still persists to today. Um, I don't think people realize that. So the next economic era, Paul, was the industrial economy, um, mm -hmm. which you know, emerged a couple hundred years ago, where we actually figured out how to use raw materials um, to build things um, and started creating factories, started creating cities. 
And again, you start to see a shift in the workforce as we started to think about the role of labor, the role of management. Um, you start to see the ability to consolidate um, and to build larger and larger organizations and to be able to further and further dehumanize your workforce because you became so large and because you became um, often much more global, um, which also enabled you to not worry so much about um, what you did in someone else's backyard because it wasn't in your backyard. And you also saw a lot more imperialism um, happen as people went around the world trying to get access to raw materials because yep. the agrarian economy, you know, agrarian products only last so long, <laughs> industrial um, products last long enough to ship to build a global economy around. Um, and what was interesting in that is you started to see the rise of satisfaction surveys, for example, um, because you started to see the rise of labor unions. And what happened with the rise of labor unions is that employees started saying, we need some form of power against the system, some way of having a voice, because each of us individually has no voice. Can we collectively get one? You started to see uh, the workforce go on strike. Um, and that was very dangerous to management. And they realized they needed to find a way to start to measure the temperature of their employee workforce to know whether they were at risk. So they could always keep the temperature below that point where they would have a work stoppage. You started to see this measurement of the workforce um, at mm. that point. Um, that sort of gave way to what you know has been the dominant economy is the information economy. Um, and what's interesting with the information economy is it's the first economy where the employees, in many cases, um, had more power than management. If you think mm. about like a software developer, for example, um, they're no longer tied like an industrial economy to a career and like a company town for their whole, their whole lives. Um, they have free agency to use your sports yep. um, uh, metaphor um, and they can move around um, and they don't even sign contracts as long as athletes do. I mean, they're, they're contracts one day at a time. So suddenly employers started having to, with that economy, shift to thinking about how do I retain people um, for the first time? And retention became a big deal. How do we make these people happy? How do we become an employer of choice? I mean, how do we mm -hmm. have people be engaged? And that was really the frame of like employee engagement, but it was still yeah. a management perspective because management was looking at how do I get discretionary units of um, effort out of my employees? Um, and that's engagement. And it was still treating people as human resources, not human beings. Um, mm. It was still seeing them as an extension of the industrial economy as a raw resource to be exploited for gain versus as human beings. Um, what we've seen now with the rise of the, the purpose economy is sort of fully moving to the point where not everyone, but that there's a large percentage of the workforce that truly has free agency um, and autonomy um, and a sense of power over where they work and how they want to work. And with that has started to actually set the rules of engagement for the workforce. And what they're saying is, yes, like I want money. I want to be paid properly. I want to be respected, but a recognition of the need for meaning in their lives. Because this economy really arose at the, a key moment in history where women were starting to become the majority of the workforce, where we saw the rise of positive psychology and the understanding of psychology. We saw mass mm -hmm. secularization and people looking for meaning outside of traditional uh, um, you know, faith-based um, institutions. And you know, mm -hmm. a series of other trends that were sort of leading to this, to this shift. So we started to see the rise of that about you know, 10 years ago. Um, and you saw companies starting to embrace that but usually around things like volunteerism and philanthropy, not understanding that this is much more core, right. much more core than that. Um, you know, having volunteerism and philanthropy is like, you know, in the information age, having a website that doesn't make you a tech company. Um, similarly, volunteerism <laughs> and philanthropy does not make you a purpose-driven company. Um, it has to do with it being holistic in everything that the organization does. And you know, I think the watershed moment for me was 
I think it was two years ago when uh, the Business Roundtable, uh, yes. sort of a collection of CEOs said, we need to rethink what the, the purpose of a company is and that shareholder value is not um, the only measure of success, um, that it is one of several measures of success. And then we need to take responsibility for that more broadly. And I think it was like 180 top CEOs signed that declaration. And to me, that was sort of the tipping point. Um, I do want to call out one thing that you said, which is, I don't think these eras end per se. Like we still have an agrarian economy. We still have an industrial. We still have the information. I think it's a question of where is the innovation? Um, where, is the, um, where is the workforce driving um, the most value? And what's driving consumer behavior? Um, so, you know, you still eat, I'm guessing, um, you are currently on a computer, so you're I still... certainly hope so, Aaron. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and you're still using, you know, uh, industrial outputs and you're still using information economy products as well. I think it has to do more with where the innovation, um, is going Got and it. the demand from the workforce and consumers. Yeah. So let's talk about this. You brought up, and that's a great point. I'm glad that you said that it's not a start stop. It, there's an overlap. There is a transition point and it may just be an ongoing piece, but there's there's scales and levers that it used to be a dominant economy versus now it might be more of the undercurrent that continues to ride forward. But you mentioned the CEO roundtable. And yes, it was a few years back. And I agree that was that watershed type moment. So to bring everybody in, this was essentially, if you would think of the old and the economist philosophy, and a lot of this gets traced back to Milton Friedman, and maybe there's some other folks, but basically it was the sole purpose of a business. This is decades back. The sole purpose of a business is to maximize shareholder value, which essentially external stakeholders, that was the driving force. Folks like your team, like employees, and like you said, like human beings that are going to battle each and every day, that was an afterthought. It was all about that external value. So I still see, at least in my work, and you and I, we definitely cross paths in terms of the organizational clients we work with, even some of the individuals we work with. I see progress and momentum toward a more purpose-driven, not only working world, but society as a whole. However, I still do constantly run into folks that think purpose is a feel-good, think purpose is a nice to have, that there is not a connection or correlation to the bottom line. So whether that's somebody that's listening in right now, or in maybe somebody listening in has a boss that thinks that way, can you walk us through the ROI of purpose? Like what is the connection of purpose to performance if we're having to have conversations with folks that may not be a believer that there is true business impact to be made from it? No, and you do a great job of documenting this in your book, um, which is beautifully laid out, by the way. I was so impressed with the uh, the design of the book and um, oh, the way you. you approached it. It's really first rate, um, incredible work. Um, I think there's so many different layers to that question around ROI. I mean, we've seen the impact on shareholder value um, and seeing that there's like a 10x return over, um, or a, I'm drawing a blank on the specific statistic, but over 10 years, you saw this like massive shift. You probably remember because you just put it in your book. Um, in this sort of ROI from a shareholder standpoint. So you do see that on shareholder value. Um, you see it in revenue. Um, and it's been proven that organizations that are embracing purpose are actually driving significantly more revenue um, than others. And then at the employee level, you see it in terms of retention. You see it in terms of innovation. You see it in terms of productivity. Um, they've shown it in sales um, that it actually produces higher you know, output for sellers. So I think it really, it, you know, if you think about it at every level, um, sure. there's been research that's been really clear about um, about that ROI. I think at the end of the day, though, um, when I hear pushback on it, first of all, I think a lot of those are laggards and dinosaurs. 
and to recognize <laughs> like they're they're not the majority anymore. Um, I, you know, I haven't met a CEO or a senior executive in a while who doesn't get this. And I've got to say, with COVID and the pandemic overall, um, and with Black Lives Matter, like it's now like definitely the minority that has that perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a fundamental understanding that the workforce has to be for human beings. And then if you don't treat your people as human beings and understand that, um, if you don't treat your customers that way, like you're missing the opportunity. And what yeah. I've seen is like leaders want this. They just needed permission. Um, they always felt like they had to deliver just for that sort of premise of shareholder value. And they, I think most of them knew that was wrong, but they couldn't stand alone in making that proclamation. And I think what the business roundtable did is it created a, a venue in which they could all raise their hands together. So it de-risked. Um, yeah. saying what they actually all believe, but we're scared to say on their own. Hmm. So you mentioned COVID. Here we are still in the midst of the pandemic, give or take at the time we're filming this, been about a year or so. And, and naturally we forge forward. And I hear purpose has come up in my opinion, at least in my both personal life and working life, purpose has been more of a hot topic, I would say, in the last 12 months. What's been your experience with it? Like if you were to say snapshot March of 2020, where is purpose? Snapshot March of 2021 and beyond, where is purpose? Like what have you learned or what new insights have you gathered from the last 12 months? No, it's really interesting. I wrote an article about this, like just probably a month or two into um, the pandemic. Looking back at 9-11, and actually when I started an organization called the Taproot Foundation was right around that time. And you see when there's these like moments of shared natural disaster or shared pain, um, there is a strong drive for people wanting to do something that's relevant. Uh, they want to do something that's meaningful. They want to feel like they're helping. They see all these people in pain. They see people helping and they're not, they want to be part of that equation. Um, and to just be sitting on the sidelines watching the news and just being like, well, that's too bad. Um, doesn't feel good. And people started to sort of question, like, what do I actually do for a living? And am I actually making the world a better place? Am I doing something that matters? Or as a CEO, like, is my, what is my company doing to actually contribute to um, addressing these needs? Um, what am I doing when I've got so many of my employees that are, you know, sick or feeling based on their race or their background that they're unsafe? Um, suddenly seeing the humanity and having permission to step back. So what I saw, you know, I think it was like after 9-11, but amplified 10x was just this individual quest for meaning, um, this individual quest to do something that's relevant um, and to not just be selling widgets or creating widgets, but actually being able to cognitively connect that to some kind of a contribution um, yeah. to something greater. And I think what's interesting is that, I think unlike 9-11, where there was this huge push for volunteerism um, as the model, what I saw a lot with this was because people couldn't go out and volunteer easily, because in a lot of cases you couldn't leave your home, um, there was a quest more to almost volunteer inside your company to figure out like who's in need in my company, who's suffering, whose families, like how do I, how can I help through Zoom? How can I help through email? Um, mm-hmm. How can I donate to my coworkers? So it became like less about us and them and more of this almost family feeling of um, how can I integrate purpose into my work itself, into my work community? Yeah. And that's very different than I think something like 9-11, where it was this like geographically focused population and like not that many ways to help. Here you suddenly saw like um, every company had people with COVID. Every company had people who had faced racial discrimination. Every company had, you know, employees whose family members were dying. Um, all of those things, I think, really contributed um, heavily to the rise of purpose. And then, I mean, 
I think it's a mistake to also not call it the obvious, which was the political campaign that was going on right. at the time as well. So you've got, you know, COVID and pandemic, you've got Black Lives Matter, and you've got this incredibly contentious uh, political campaign where people were just feeling whatever side you were on, like it was this existential threat and that people felt like they needed to stand up and have their voice heard. And there was safe space created much more as companies were actually taking a stand on issues Yeah, um, for employees to feel like they could do that as well. Love that. And fully agree with everything you just said, given the just such a unique 12 months we've been in, many of it unprecedented, and, and there was so much overlap and synergy there. What if for somebody listening and now talking to our Playmaker community, I am the leader of a team and I am a full subscriber and believer to everything that you just said, but now tactically, what are some ways that I can create a more purpose-driven team, purpose-driven organization, purpose-driven culture? If I am in a positional leadership seat, because I'm one of those that believes that true leadership starts with self, we'll get to that in a bit, but right now let's just talk positional leaders. I'm listening in right now. What are some things that I can do tomorrow? What are you seeing from some of your clients or just from your network overall on, on how we can apply purpose to the working world? Yeah, and I'll try to answer that both in terms of like what I'm doing, saying it's very specific and then more more broadly. So, yeah. you know, since writing the purpose economy, I traveled the world, talked to leaders of, you know, every type of organization and government and just trying to really understand like how can at scale I support, you know, the, the rise of purpose in people's lives and in organizations mm-hmm. and after a tremendous amount of R&D, um, sort of our version of Purpose Lab, um, what we came to was that it's not a solo act. It's something that actually requires support um, from other people. And it's a continuous process of reflection and being able to intentionally think about how do I want to show up and how do I want to show up with my best self? How do I want to show up with an intention around my purpose? And um, you know, what we've built as a way to scale that is the first ever pure coaching technology platform um, that's powered by our purpose technology. So we're able to, um, with our profile, determine the purpose of every employee in about 10 minutes um, to actually determine psychologically every employee's purpose. And then we pair them uh, with another employee for five one-hour conversations over a quarter where they both just really talk about their results of their purpose profile, how they're crafting their job to optimize for that, Um, And learning Mm. from each other, the different hacks that each of them are trying and what's working and not working, finding commonality and difference um, in their sense of purpose. And then the next quarter, they get a new partner and they're continuing this ongoing process of, you know, crafting their job with meaning and meeting different people and coming to see them and appreciate them based on their purpose. Um, Because I think, you know, I I always like I, I never I lost track of like whose quota was, but there's this great quote around like you never truly know someone until you know their hopes and their dreams and their aspirations. Mm. Um, so it's a way of like really helping to like people to get to know each other and to fundamentally like break through um, and see each other. So that's sort of yeah. you know, what we do as a company, you know, working with large corporations. So short of hiring imperative, which you obviously should do, but um, short of that, <laughs> um, yeah, I think a couple of things I would say. One is just figure out ways to help people see the why behind whatever the work is that they're doing. I think a lot of jobs, you don't see the ripple effect of what you're doing. So, you know, a great example is recruiters. You know, this is probably an easy one to tell. Like a recruiter, often they place the person and then it's like on to the next. But actually enabling them to take an hour, like six months later and go talk to that person at the company and see how they're doing suddenly makes that work they did so much more meaningful um, just to see the ripple effect. Same thing in sales, right? Like you sell something to actually see 
you know, six months later, like what was the impact for your buyer of that? Um, and maybe it was not what you hoped it was. And like the learning itself is a sense of a meaning and purpose for somebody. But being able to follow that, follow that chain is really important for purpose. Um, the second thing I would say is um, as a leader, find ways to help truly see your employees um, for who they are as human beings. Because that's the starting place to create the psychological safety for them to actually start to show up more um, with their purpose. And to see someone, it's like it's about being curious and trying to really get to know who they are in a much more holistic way and to mm. express that back to them. Um, and to do you know, earlier, we we're talking about those positive deviant moments, like help them yeah. see that. Like if you see, you know, one of your friends or one of your colleagues lighting up, like, say, I see you lighting up like this is really energizing for you because they may not even notice that that's happening. But like help them feel seen that way. Um, that makes a big impact. So those are just a couple of like simple things yeah. Um, yeah. that I recommend. As we take a quick break from today's interview, a reminder of gratitude for our sponsor, Audible, who is offering each and every playmaker a free audiobook and 30-day free trial when you visit audible.playmakerspod.com. If there's one thing I've seen in most successful people that I've come across, there are a few consistent habits, none greater than the daily practice of leveling up through the power of reading. Some of us like to crack a book open, while others prefer to listen in to our favorite authors narrate their written work of art. What could be better than a platform like Audible to make this habit a reality? To download your free audiobook today, go to audible.playmakerspod.com. It's time to level up. No, that's great. And so if we tackled more of the positional leader there. Now let's just tap it into the entire community. And but let's stay in the working space because I think this is important. We think of purpose on a multi-level capacity. At least for myself, I think the front end is the discovery of purpose. That's one thing. Many call it finding your why from the work of Simon Sinek and others. Now then you go into well, the discovery doesn't mean anything if you never activate it. If you're not living and leading with purpose on a daily basis, then it, it was a sugar high. It's a it's a North Star, but you're still lacking clarity and direction. The third level would be sustainment. Now, especially think of you were extremely purpose-driven in 2019, then the storms of 2020 hit. Do you maintain, sustain, and even persevere to level up your purpose. So I, I think tactically, you can tackle all three, you can double click on one of the three, but if discovery of purpose is one, activating your purpose is two, and sustaining purpose is three, what can we do in terms of actions, behaviors, just on a very how-to tactical level? Um, so some of the best research from this came from a university. I'm trying to remember the name of it. Um, oh, Michigan. It was Michigan. Um, ah, um, there you go. Can I get another go blue in? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think we just lost everybody. O-H-I-O. We just lost them all. That's fine. Sorry. No worries there. Um, say lovey. Um, so I think this whole idea that Amy Rosniewski and Jane Dutton at Michigan's business school really developed around job crafting is just really yes. an important mindset shift. Um, for everyone to take. So I want to take a sort of roll up from there a little bit. Um, the old model of careers is really outdated. Um, this idea of defining yourself by your profession, this idea of like taking classes and certifying in certain skills, the idea of this progression. Um, one, the world's just much more fluid than that. Um, 10 to I think 20 years from now, 80% of the professions and jobs that are existing today won't exist 
anymore. Um, tie your identity to your profession is just not a really smart move, period. Um, tying your identity to your purpose and figuring out how are you constantly crafting your job, no matter what that job is, um, to be optimized for meaning um, is the way to do that. And I always give the example, like when you identify what brings you purpose, you could be a CEO, an executive assistant, or the center for the Knicks, and you should still be able to use that purpose to find meaning in your work. It should not be about a cause. It's not about something super narrow. Um, it's really about those little things every day that bring meaning um, to your work. So mm. I think taking this idea that you're a work in progress, you're a continuous experiment, and the way to approach your career is not about like, it's time to go get a different degree, or I am a this or I'm a that, um, but it's instead seeing every week as a new experiment. And Adam Grant, and I, I think he went to Michigan as well, Paul. Um, oh gosh, uh, just a Grant, coincidence. I know, Come right? Um, all good things. So Adam Grant, um, in his new book, I don't know if you've read his new book, but it's um, fantastic. Um, Phenomenal. But he talks a lot about like scientific method and how to continuously apply a scientific method um, to you know, your company. But I think if you apply that to actually your um, day-to-day job, to think of your job as like going back to chemistry class of like coming up with a hypothesis, testing it, measuring to see if it works. So um, mm. how can you every week run an experiment about showing up differently, trying something new, building a different relationship, make time to reflect, but sort of build your career as a continuous science experiment um, to figure out like how to optimize you and how you can add value to the world. That is a mindset is much closer to what we now know in science is the right way to approach work. And I'll just share one last thing, which is my sort of kicker on don't identify yourself with a profession. Um, and actually Derek, Derek Jeter, oh, another Michigan guy. So um, Derek Jeter- Do you Jeter, purposely do this here? No, it, it's actually all good things, all good things, I'm telling you. Um, so Jeter is also a Yankee, which is my team. Um, so that's part of, um, of it. Um, I know sort of they talked about him as like a professional, right? They always talked about Derek Jeter, the professional. And um, you sort of ask, what does that mean? It's like that he can reliably go up and sort of um, do a function and to produce um, reliable results. It's all about reliability of doing the same activity over and over again. You go to a doctor because they can reliably do the same thing over and over again, which is why I go to a doctor mm-hmm. instead of you, right? Like you might do mm-hmm. surgery fine once, but you're not going to probably do it reliably over time. So, you know, Derek Jeter, they talked about as like the consummate professional can reliably do the same thing and get reliable results. If you think about the definition of what AI can automate, it's consistent behaviors that can produce reliable results. So basically anything that's basically what a professional does is sort of the primary target for AI. So um, my general uh, advice to people is to be as unprofessional as possible in their career um, and to just be a human being and embrace the things that make you human because those are the things that are not going to get replaced. And those are the areas that if you invest in them are likely to have longevity in your career and to use a scientific method to constantly be experimenting about how to show up as a human being, not as an accountant, not as a salesperson, not as an engineer, but as a human being. Um, and that continuous curiosity is what's going to think serve you best. Yeah, no, this is great. And so a recap would be, A, I love your idea about us implementing weekly experiments into our life and even just having a humble and vulnerable perspective in the mirror of we're all works in progress. If I considered my life an experiment, Paul Epstein an experiment, I'm more willing to tear through the muscle and innovate. And even if it means to use kind of the cliche terms, I can create my own pivots and reinventions because I'm not married to who I am based on what I do. I'm married to my purpose. I'm married to what makes me feel alive. And that can be a little bit more of an 
energy driver attribute base. So I think the, the weekly experiments is great. Um, the other aspects you brought up, which I think are fascinating is, you know, us taking a look in the, not only the rear view mirror, but the, the job crafting piece, that is something if folks listening in are not familiar with job crafting, again, it happens to be some university of Michigan folks in positive leadership that really, uh, originated the idea. There's some books on it as well that you can look into in terms of how to design your life how to design your work life. And, and there's some really fascinating stuff there. Um, I think those are some Stanford guys that did that. So I'll have to provide a little diversity on this call. But one other thing, this is tactical, but I'm going to position it as a question for you because I almost want to role model this for others. And so I'm sure you're familiar with the lifeline exercise, Aaron, and because it's, it's a very common practice in terms of the fundamental and foundational piece of discovering your purpose if you were in more of a workshop setting. So for those listening in, imagine there's a blank sheet of paper and you're gonna write cues about your lifeline. It's your life journey from birth on the left to present day on the right. Above the line are peaks, below the line are valleys, both equally fundamental to your life. What are those moments, those memories, those events that have shaped you, molded you, made you into who you are today? So Aaron, for you, if you could share with our audience one peak and one valley that you would include in your lifeline that would really say, okay, here's the backstory and here's how it connects to my purpose. That would be a great piece for you to share with us. Uh, so many I'm trying to figure out uh, which one to, which one, which one to share. Um, you know, I think a really big, uh, value for me was actually my parents' divorce and then my mother, you know, we moved to Canada and my mother became just really depressed and bedridden and really couldn't mm -hmm. care for us as children. And I think for me, it was this like painful experience of having to raise ourselves, but also, um, just seeing that she wasn't taking responsibility, um, for, you know, her life and, you know, taking care of us. And I think that really led me to have the purpose and the power to sort of come out of that and say, um, I want to help people not fall into that trap of depression and lack of autonomy and um, uh, that sense of helplessness, as you shared earlier. So mm -hmm. I think that really has propelled me to empower people to give them sort of wind in their sails, if you will, um, to help them also just feel accountable to their best self and to realize they have core value and that they are somebody of worth and that they need to bring that, um, you know, to their everyday and that the world needs them. So I think that was a really... Um, seminal valley for me um, around that. Um, I think in terms of uh, in terms of peaks, one of the things that really like strikes me was really taking Taproot International. Um, I loved working with um, the BMW Foundation to really be able to take um, imperative the 30 countries, or not imperative, sorry, Taproot to 30 countries around the world and then to be able to travel to a lot of those countries and be working with these incredible you know, entrepreneurs in China, Costa Rica, France, et cetera, who like shared this vision that you know, we had around work and around purpose and to help them you know, learn from what we did, but also realize that they were innovating in ways that you know, in many cases was better than what I had done um, and yeah. learn from them. And that to me was, like, I think it was a pinnacle um, just to be in a position to to travel the world meeting people who um, were just so inspiring and amazing. Hmm. Oh, well, thank you for, for sharing all of that. And to your point where 
you talked earlier, we were t speaking about leadership and understanding the human side of everybody on your team. But I think now put the positions to the side and imagine for everybody listening in, you don't need to be in a positional leadership role for what I'm about to share. This can be a, an inclusive piece where you just gather folks around. I know right now we're largely virtual, but let's wave a wand. And yes, we could do it over Zoom, but eventually we're going to get back together and, and that's going to happen. But imagine if you would literally ask folks, hey, let's, what's the biggest peak of your life? What's the biggest valley of your life? How has it molded you, shaped you? Other questions like what inspires you? Finding out what motivates them, what gets them out of bed, what are they most excited about? Just some big questions and some simple questions that should be much more accessible. Th those are just some great ways that you can tap into the humanity of the folks that you're locking arms with on a daily basis. So hopefully that's a... One sort of an Go ahead. to that, Paul, and, and what you're describing is right on. I think one thing I've found though is when you start talking about the greatest or the most, um, that often um, puts people in a hard position to answer. And I've found that often starting off with like, what's a, like some smaller examples of like, you know, yeah. what's something that was super energizing this week? Um, what, um, what is right. something you're proud of having done in your career? Um, taking it out of the extremes and just trying to make it more accessible to start the conversation. You, you eventually get to yes. where you're describing, but I, I think sometimes people freeze and you're looking at the greatest because it's like, then you're looking at their identity and it starts to feel less safe. Whereas if you can frame the question in a way that, um, you know, is a little bit more accessible and pedestrian, and I find more people are able to contribute, at least out the gate um, to that. So just a suggested modification that um, I've seen really work well. A hundred percent. And I'm glad you said that. Not only what you're asking, but you added a wrinkle in there that I think is super important about timing. And sometimes when you say, oh, think about over the course of your life, right there, end the sentence, that sounds overwhelming <laughs> just by introduction, especially over a coffee. But if you say, hey, in, in the past 30 days, what are you most excited about in the, in the coming week? Right? What's something on the calendar this month that excites you? I, I think something like that, to your point, can add some great flavor. So I'm going to go ahead. I was going to say, it's sort of the equivalent a friend of mine shared. Of like, if I asked you, she was an expert in dating and like good questions on dates. And the difference between asking someone, what's your favorite book of all time, which obviously is one of ours, but um, what is your favorite <laughs> book of all time versus like, what's a book you've read recently that you enjoyed? Um much easier to answer like what's a book you've read recently that you enjoyed and actually much more meaningful than asking someone like what you know what's your favorite book of all time so i think it's just that equivalent great analogy now that's a great analogy so i asked this question as a hypothetical a few moments ago for our audience now i'll pose it back to you and and actually let me try to apply what you just said because the question is What's exciting? I'll just ask you, what's exciting you most right now? Like here where we are today and you think about the future state, if I ask it the, with the Aaron Hurst twist, what's exciting you the most in the next 30 days? <laughs> but I'll, I'll just leave it open for you to answer any way that you want. No, I think the thing for me from a, a work perspective, at least, is I think we've been starting to do this peer coaching platform rollout in companies. Mm -hmm. And the next month we're doing some of our sort of largest rollouts and seeing that um, take hold. And Paul, I've been, I have Slack and we use Slack at work and we have a feed that shows positive comments that people are getting out of a conversation with each other. Um, mm -hmm. And just to see thousands of those roll in um, and just seeing like those little tiny moments of connection 
and what a difference that's made in people's lives. And then when I think about a rollout on a massive scale, just like multiplying that um, sort of almost exponentially, it just gives me goosebumps thinking about it. So that's sort of yeah. the thing that you know I'm really um, excited to see over the next um, 30 days. Um, yeah. And then on a personal level, I think I probably share this with almost everyone listening. I'm starting to, in the next 30 days, plan sort of the trip, the first trip, um, ah, the first adventure. And that's one of my favorite questions now is to sort of like, what's, what is the trip you're thinking about wanting to do the first time that you can really um, remove the barriers that the pandemic have created? Um, but that's something I'm, I'm super pumped about. Yeah, no, that's so good. Interestingly, I, I was just chatting with my wife recently about that, not only because of getting out of the, the storms of COVID, but also we're new parents and it's our first. And so we're, we're like, when, do, when can we disappear <laughs> for about two or three days like our grandparents are now coming into the fold and doing the babysitting thing which is great and so you could say we're training them up for that first vacation <laughs> so that uh me and mrs epstein can uh, hop down to cabo and have ourselves some margaritas in good times that's that's what we're excited about yeah oh love it all right game on so aaron what's uh on the flip side if that's what's exciting you most What's keeping you up at night? Like, is there something just this deep burning thing that you're still not quite comfortable with? Or you're just like, man, I don't know if there's a little bit of an anxiety about the future. Just like what's keeping you up? Um, I think it's a, a couple of things. I think one is just, you know, we're a startup. We're growing fast and um, wanting to practice what we preach. And I think we've done a good job of that. But as we start to scale and there's more and more pressure, it's like how to actually make sure I'm doing what I talk about. Um, how to make sure that, you know, truly treating everybody as human beings that, you know, recognizing, you know, their needs beyond, um, you know, beyond work. Um, and especially with, you know, to the conversation we were just having, a lot of people are excited to go out and like have an adventure this summer. And yeah. I want to enable that at the same time, like crap, like this summer that we got to hit our numbers, we got to make sure everything's happening. So it's like trying to like, um, I think trying to, to balance that. Um, and then I think that, you know, I think like most people, I still remain sick about what's going on politically in our country and um, the lack of ability for people to be curious about um, other people and the, um, the scarcity mindset that's dominating our culture right now versus an abundance mindset that um, there's plenty to go around for everyone to be successful. Um, this isn't an either or. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, really worried about, you know, can we turn that? Can we turn that around? Um, there's definitely a path to do it, but it continues that that definitely keeps me up at night. Yeah, no, hundred percent. So on a lighter note, cup, cup of coffee. Yep. Who's somebody dead or alive that you would just enjoy having a cup of coffee with? And what's one thing you would want to um, gather from the conversation? Um, I, I mean, I'll go back to earlier conversation. I, my mother died when I was 22. And I honestly, I'd like to go back and sort of, I don't feel like she and I ever resolved our relationship um, mm. and like sort of really worked through, you know, the challenges that were, you know, you know, having her as a mother. But also, I don't think I ever, I was so angry about that. I never got a chance to appreciate the amazing things about her. So I'd love to have the opportunity to go back and just like help her feel seen and that I appreciated yeah. who she was as a person. So, um Probably more like tequila than coffee, but um, nonetheless, <laughs> that's that's what comes. To I'm mind. noticing a trend here. Yep, Michigan and tequila, it's two good things. Michigan and tequila, yes. 
Well, for one, thank you again for sharing and being vulnerable with us about that. If you were to say, you just brought, you said something about your mom making her feel seen. And in my opinion, that's probably one of the bigger gaps that we're facing right now as a society. You brought up last calendar year and Black Lives Matter and just a lot of folks that it's like, hey, does everybody genuinely feel they have a seat at the table? Like genuinely, like true access, genuine opportunity. This is something that definitely keeps me up at night and I'm on a mission to uh, tackle this head on. So for you, what are some things that everybody can do? Take work out of this. This is just a human conversation. How can we create a more inclusive culture, inclusive environment, inclusive community? Like just talk to us about your thoughts there. I mean, the word that always comes to mind is just curiosity. Yeah. Um, and I think it cuts to like some of the challenges that are happening on both sides politically in our world right now. Um, I think we've uh, lost the ability to be openly curious about other people. And if you're not curious about someone, you're not going to see them. And if we're too worried about upsetting somebody, um, then you're not going to be curious and be able to have that kind of relationship. So we need to be able to express that curiosity in a respectful way, um, in a sensitive way, but to be able to have that curiosity um, and also create space for people to be curious about, you know, about you as well and being more vulnerable yeah. and open. But I think if we could just infuse curiosity into our culture, infuse a lot of what Adam you know, wrote about around the scientific method of just like um, being open to the fact that you uh, know a very small percentage of what is to be knowable and to come in with the yeah. humility and the curiosity. Um, yeah. I, I think that could solve this in ways that almost nothing else can. Because I think a lot of the other things are around, they're punitive, they're about sort of um, historic issues, they're things that are hard to address. I think if we just start off with just saying like, hey, it's okay to be curious and I, like, I value you being curious. And mm. um, I think that's, that's the thing that's gonna make the difference. So you mentioned some of Adam Grant's work, and we can call some of those things because he does share some tactical pieces around resources. But if you zoom out from his work and just say overall, do you have some favorite or would you recommend some favorite resources that can drive curiosity? I think it's personal. Um, I don't mean in the sense of like, don't ask me that, that's personal. No, but sure, the, sure. But in the sense that um, curiosity to me is more about just opening your eyes and looking around you and just seeing what's curious to you, right? Yeah. Um, it may be that, you know, like right now I'm looking, you know, look out the window and I'm like, you know, curious about a plant. I'm curious about the dirt. Um, I'm curious about, you know, my kid and like what they're thinking about. Um, yeah. Like I'm curious to look at the clouds of like how do weather patterns actually work? Like I remember that from middle school, but I don't really remember like how does that work again? Um, so to me, it's more about following a thread than me telling you what thread. I would just say, open your eyes and just look for yeah. things that are curious to you. Because what's curious to me, you might find not very interesting um, and vice versa. Spot on. And to bring everybody into the fold here, and I'm going to double click on something you said earlier in the conversation about sometimes we make things sound so big, finding your purpose, biggest peak or valley of life. And I appreciate you calling that out because it drills in on what I'm about to share. People often say, okay, Paul, if purpose is the end game, the discovery, the activation, the sustainment, the whole journey, and a lot of folks know my story that are listening in, but what's before that? How can I make this more accessible to people versus, hey, go to a workshop, find your why tomorrow, bada bing, bada boom, your life takes off. That's just not reality. So what comes before purpose? I think of two words, passion, and I think of curiosity. And I think there's a sequence. I think you start with curiosity, 
And then when you realize, I'm curious about these five things, but there's one that's really getting me fired up. Maybe behind door number two, there's a passion and you discover that passion. And then to your point, maybe you create some weekly experiments in the space of that passion, be it what you do in your evenings, in your spare time, you invest some uh, time over a weekend. It can be away from your profession, but curiosity can lead to a passion and eventually there can be hints of that eventual purpose. So I think if we all start from a place of curiosity, we could be better for it. Amen. I think it's absolutely spot on. All right, so closing thought here. Uh, If you could just share one last piece of advice, you have just been a wealth of information, knowledge, and a lot of Go Blue references. So we know you're smart, but now (laughs) we just want you to help us be our best self. So what's one piece of advice that you would give to everybody listening in as we go forward? I was, I guess it's a starting place, sort of answering your previous question, like instead of a book or an article, um, I would just say find one person um, that you'd like to get to know better um, and practice curiosity with them. Mm. Great. All right, my friend, that is the mic drop. Aaron, we so appreciate you being on Playmakers A, I'm going to see you in Cabo. B, for everybody listening in, meet us down there and we can continue this conversation around a pool. But genuinely, brother, this was just a a fascinating convo from the depths of purpose to some economic perspective, the working world that we're in, and most importantly, just being a great human being and how we can show up as peers in service to one another. So thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts to be on Playmakers. It's wonderful to be part of the community and always enjoy our conversations and look forward to uh, many more to come in Cabo or elsewhere. (laughs) Yes. All right. Be well, my friend. Right back at you. What an awesome conversation with Aaron. I especially love how deep and human he got about tapping into our purpose and unleashing our impact. It's now time for all of us as playmakers, you and I, to make a purpose-driven play of our own. So Aaron and I riffed on some thought-provoking questions during our conversation about how do you truly get to know somebody? What motivates them? What inspires them? What excites them? What are they curious about? Now, let's take it up a notch by engaging with a personal favorite exercise from my book, The Power of Playing Offense. The activity is called Interview Your Who, and you can find it linked in today's show notes. All of the instructions the logistics and questions are there, so no need to drill into them just yet. But I do want to give some quick insight about selecting your who prior to interviewing them. Ideally, your who is somebody that is still with you in your life, somebody that inspires you. Somebody that you would follow to no end. Bottom line, they mean the world to you. Your who is somebody that picks you up when you're down and they propel you to make even more plays in your life than you ever thought possible. Have that person in mind? Awesome. It is now time to interview your who. And just as a reminder, you will find it linked in today's show notes. I can't wait to hear about your experience. And as always, shoot me a DM on social or email me at paul at paulepsteinspeaks.com to get in touch 
Love to hear about your experience. Until the next time, may you live and lead with purpose and a spirit of playing offense. Make it an amazing day. Loved what you just heard? Share it with another playmaker. And for all of today's show notes, head over to playmakerspod.com where you can not only enjoy additional resources from today's show, but all previous episodes as well. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever it is that you get your favorite podcasts. If you gain significant value from today's episode and genuinely feel that you have leveled up, give us a five-star rating. And between now and the next Playmakers episode, let's stay connected. Hit me up on LinkedIn, at Paul Epstein, or Instagram, at Paul Epstein Speaks. Playmakers is produced by Motown Podcast Studios in collaboration with Purpose Labs. Wishing you a high-impact week of action and purpose. See you next time on Playmakers. Playmakers.